I am Felix Bunnell. Welcome to episode 16 of the Housebound Historian. We're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan and published, as I always say, by Viking in 1951. We're still on the section of the book called John Considine and the Box Houses, 1893 to 1910, and we're starting with section 5. The next day, Tuesday, June 25th, John Considine rose early for a gambling man, about nine. He breakfasted with his wife and three children and left his house on 17th Street about 10.30. It was a cool spring day, and as he walked downtown, he could see the Olympics across the bay, still heavy with winter snow. Rainier stood clear against the eastern sky. It was a fine day to be alive. Considine walked to Columbia and 16th, where he talked to M.L. Bear, Meredith's attorney. He asked Bear whether Meredith intended to retract his statements about the contortionist. Bear didn't know. Considine said as he left, quote, I want you to tell that little sport that unless he retracts in the newspapers about Mamie, I will prosecute him for civil and criminal libel. From the lawyer's office, he went to his brother's house on Yesler Way. Together, the Considines walked down the hill to Morrison's, a saloon where Tom stopped off to shoot pool. John went on to the courthouse to discuss the problems of box house liquor sales with the prosecuting attorney, but the official was out. As he left the courthouse, a friend rushed up. John, are you carrying a gun? No, said Considine. Why? Meredith's after you. Get a gun, for God's sake. Considine said he wouldn't take any unnecessary chances. After lunch, John rejoined his brother at the pool hall and lost three straight games to him. Tom kidded him heavily about his poor playing on their way to the people's. John went to his office, which was on the ground floor, and wrote a couple of letters. He decided to go home early. He wasn't feeling well. His throat was sore. Before leaving the theater, he took a thirty-eight revolver from his desk and thrust it into his gun pocket, a buckskin pouch sewed into his pants where a watch pocket usually is. The day had turned gray and a chilly wind was blowing. The Considine started walking north along Second. Half a mile away, Meredith was walking south on Second, festooned with weapons. In his arms he held a yard-long package wrapped in brown butcher paper. At his right hip was a thirty-two Colt in a forty-five frame. In his right vest pocket there was a thirty-eight caliber bulldog revolver, a weapon with a very short barrel. In his left vest pocket was a dirk. He also had four silver dollars in his vest pockets, perhaps for armor. As he walked down the street, Meredith met M. F. White, a real estate agent from Spokane. He asked if White had seen the Considine boys. No, said White, and then, with mischievous innocence, why, are they friends of yours? The town isn't big enough to hold us both, Meredith said, and walked on. He went south to Occidental and Yesler, where the Considines usually caught a streetcar up Yesler. There he met his attorney. The two men stood on the corner, talking for nearly an hour. The Considines would have encountered him at that corner if John had not met Solon Williams, an attorney, who reported hearing a rumor that Meredith had resigned as chief. They walked down to First Avenue with Williams, who invited them to join him in a drink to Meredith's misfortune. Tom was for it, but John, a teetotaler, said he wanted to go to Guy's drugstore at Second and Yesler to get something for his throat. The brothers walked along first to Yesler, turned up to Second, and crossed the cobbled street to the drugstore. Meredith, a block away, saw them crossing the street. He started toward them, calling over his shoulder to Bear. Stick here, I want to see you in a minute. Hurrying down the block, he encountered Tom Lindsay, an old acquaintance, who started to speak, but Meredith brushed by him with a remark, There's the son of a bitch I want to settle with. As the Considine started into the store, John first, a policeman just coming out through the narrow swinging doors under a sign that read, Irusa Cures Piles or $50 Forfeited, recognized them, grinned and reached out to shake hands. Patrolman A. H. Murford, 
had had no use for the chief of police ever since Meredith had suspended him briefly for pocketing half of a five-dollar protection payment he had been sent to collect from a pimp. Murford had heard of Meredith's resignation and wanted to congratulate Considine for ridding the force of such an unprincipled leader. The men were unaware of Meredith, who had now come up behind them. He stopped next to a pillar that divided the outer entrance. With his foot next to a Coca-Cola advertisement and his elbow touching a black and gold sign for Mackenzie's Qatar treatment, he pushed the shotgun over Tom's shoulder and at the range of about two feet fired at John Considine. He missed. The very nearness of the gun saved Considine. The buckshot failed to scatter. It passed over Considine's shoulder and knocked a shower of plaster from the ceiling. Unwounded but dazed by the muzzle blast, Considine staggered through the wooden screens into the store. Meredith pushed past Tom Considine and Patrolman Murford, both of whom were stupid with shock from having the heavy gun go off almost in their faces. John Considine ran on rubbery legs down the closed horseshoe formed by the glass display counters. Meredith raised a shotgun, which was still wrapped in brown paper, and fired again. The swinging door hit his arm as he pulled the trigger. One pellet struck Considine in the back of the neck and flattened against the bone at the base of his skull. The rest of the blast smashed through the forearm of a Western Union employee who was having a glass of sarsaparilla at the counter. Dr. Guy, who was mixing a prescription at the back of the store, ducked behind the counter when a bottle of medicine shattered in front of his face. Meredith dropped the shotgun, its paper wrappings now torn and burned. He hitched the revolver off his hip. Considine was trapped in the corral formed by the showcases. Tom, Tom, he screamed. Then he turned and lunged at Meredith before his assailant could level the gun. He wrapped his long arms around Meredith and hugged him close, forcing him to keep the gun pointed in the air. Considine, outweighing Meredith by fully sixty pounds, bowled him toward the front of the store. Tom Considine came out of his daze. He burst into the store and twisted the gun from Meredith's hand. He beat Meredith savagely on the head with it, fracturing his skull in two places. Sheriff Ed Cudahy and Detective A.G. Lane, who had been a block away when the shooting started, rushed in. Lane grabbed the gun from Tom, who yelled, Give it to me! Give it to me! He's got another! Someone pulled John Considine away from Meredith, who reeled across the aisle and sagged against a counter. Tom, with a sudden grab, wrenched the gun away from Lane. Give it to him, Tom! John Considine shouted. Tom turned the gun on the people who were crowding into the drugstore. Stand back, you sons of bitches! he yelled. Somebody grabbed him from behind. Meredith had pulled himself almost upright and stood swaying near the showcase. His head was down on his chest and his hands were scrabbling aimlessly at his side, but he was on his feet, moving. John Considine broke free from the man holding him. He pulled out his thirty-eight and stepped toward Meredith. He fired when he was about three feet away. The shot struck Meredith below the floating rib on the left side and passed through his liver. He reeled to his left. Considine fired again. The bullet went in just under the left nipple and smashed Meredith's heart. Meredith said, oh, and pitched forward. Considine was so close that his second shot set Meredith's coat on fire. He shot again as Meredith fell, the bullet entering below the collarbone. Meredith fell on his back, his head toward the west. He was dead. Sheriff Cudahy ran up to Considine. The gambler handed him the gun. You're under arrest, John, Cudahy said. Considine nodded. The whole fight, from Meredith's first shot to Considine's third one, had taken about 90 seconds. Five months after the shooting, the state of Washington put John Considine on trial. The charge was premeditated murder, murder in the first degree. The sentence sought was death by hanging. The trial overflowed into politics. Both Meredith and Considine were Republicans in good standing, identified with the locally dominant anti-reform elements. But the shooting changed Meredith's status. Dead at the hands of a notorious gambler and boxhouse operator, 
he became a martyr for those who wanted to tidy up the skid road and corset the bountiful damsels in the drinking establishments. The trial was more than a trial of John Considine. It was a test of open city versus closed city, of law officer, though resigned, against box house operator, though personable, of the Seattle Times versus the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. The appeal was to emotions rather than to thought. The prosecution argued that Meredith was fired on first and replied in self-defense. Before he opened up on Considine with his bargain-basement shotgun, the prosecutor said, somebody lurking in an alley had tried to pot him at long range with a pistol. The state marshaled a parade of witnesses who swore that they had heard six shots, not five, or, at least, thought they might have heard a sixth shot. Under cross-examination by William Norris, the defense attorney, their confidence and their credibility collapsed. The prosecution brought up the argument of the limp hands, that after Tom Considine cracked Meredith's skull with a revolver, Meredith was helpless and could not attempt further damage to anyone, and that John Considine knew it. The defense countered with the doctrine of the continuous struggle, the purport of which was that things were happening so fast and so steadily that Considine had no opportunity to think things out but acted instinctively. Morris argued that if the state felt Meredith had been justified in being so miffed by Considine's testimony that he would carry a sawed-off shotgun and use it on sight, then surely Considine's uneasiness at seeing Meredith standing alone and unguarded by the castor oil counter was equally understandable. The state played hard on Considine's unsavory reputation. When Considine took the stand, the prosecuting attorney asked him if it were not true that he had shot a man in Chicago. Considine replied angrily, No, sir, I never shot a man in my life until this trouble. I never shot at a man. I never shot a gun toward a man, and I never paid a dollar's fine in my life for simple assault. Most damaging to the state's case against Considine was Meredith's pre-dual gabbiness. He had killed Considine so many times verbally that the defense was able to round up a host of witnesses who swore they had heard him make statements that ranged from, This town isn't big enough for both of us, to, If he gets me out of my job, I'll kill the son of a bitch. They couldn't get a jury in King County that would convict me for killing Considine. Political passions were aroused to such a degree that observers were unsure of the outcome until the very last moment. The Argus reported that betting odds were on a conviction. When the final arguments were presented, the widow Meredith and her two children sat at the state's table. Mrs. Considine, her three children, and Considine's aged father sat behind the accused. The jury went into deliberation at 2.30 on the afternoon of November 21st, 15 days after the trial began. An hour later, they asked for a resume of Judge Emery's charge. Two more hours passed, but few spectators left the courtroom. At 5.30, the jury filed in and took their seats. The foreman handed the verdict to the bailiff, who in turn handed it to the judge, who inspected it briefly and gave it to the clerk to read. John Considine leaned forward on the table. His eyes squinted and the muscles in his cheeks twitched slightly. The clerk droned through the paper, which gave no hint of the verdict until the last sentence. As the clerk impassively read the phrase, not guilty, there was a gasp from the table where the Considines were seated. John half rose from his chair. His wife threw her arms around him. Tom burst into tears and put his arms around John from behind. The old father looked quietly at the jury, not moving, tears rolling down his cheeks. John whispered to Tom. Together they walked to the jury box and shook hands with the jurymen who were filing out. The post-intelligencer was delighted at the verdict, which it felt was a vote of no confidence in Hume's administration. The Times commented sourly that it was a miracle the acting chief had not been shot, since open season had been declared on law officials. 
down the sound, the Tacoma Ledger had some pungent remarks about the outcome. A jury declared Considine innocent. On the showing in open court, the fact was made clear that Considine had repeatedly shot a man already dazed and helplessly wounded, a man who without this violence would have been dead in a short time. Perhaps conduct such as this is the outcome of innocence. It will, however, be acknowledged that innocence has on other occasions taken a less sanguinary way of manifesting itself. There have been plenty of real innocent persons never moved by the impulse to shoot a dying man. Murder is a serious affair. Among the rights of the human being is the right to live. Society says he shall not be deprived of that right. With all respect to the courts that they deserve it, it will have to be admitted that in this instance they have declared homicide not to be a crime. John Considine has been acquitted after having killed a man. All who feel the impulse to congratulate him are at liberty to do so. In a few months' time, Considine crossed the line and established himself as one of Seattle's most successful businessmen. And we'll stop right there. This has been Episode 16 of The Housebound Historian. I'm Felix Bennell, and we're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan and published by Viking in 1951. Join me again for the next episode of The Housebound Historian.